there's no critical thinking of how will we reinvent the material or will it be more than one material or why why should it just be what the contractor tells us from the harvard graduate school of design this is future of the american city I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with architect Jennifer Bonner and engineer Hanif Kara. Jennifer and Hanif join us today to discuss their new book, Blank, Speculations on CLT. Jennifer, Hanif, welcome. Hello. Thank you. It's lovely to see you both. Thanks uh, for joining us. Um, let's start at the beginning. Uh, what's a blank? Um, so <clears throat> a blank is a word that probably uh, is connected to the manufacturing industry. I think we found one manufacturer that actually uses the term. I guess you could also call it a billet. Um, <clears throat> and we're trying to take the term and um, popularize it. So it's a way that we can describe uh, mass timber or specifically CLT. And so we want the um, readers and the audience of this book to think about the blank as this large scale industrialized object. So we're trying to um, uh, get it in everyone's mind that this is a um, ready-made object that's a manufactured object and it's ready to be worked on and used in exciting ways. And so for the purposes of the book, um, we say the blank is approximately nine feet by 50 feet long, which translate to the scale of a a truck uh, and shipping containers. And I could imagine how um, blank, you know, opens to questions of blankness and questions of architectural representation more completely than billet might. Um, so we're talking about cross-laminated timber, mass timber, as you say. Um, and on the one hand, this notion of the blank as a, a kind of basic integer, is that a, a fair way of approaching it? So on the one hand, you know, something akin to a brick but at the same moment, something at a scale which is closer to um, closer to a concrete frame, close probably closer to a large wall, you know, because at that sort of height and length, you could you can't imagine it to be it's never be a frame, right? It would be a slabbed wall system, floor and walls, so it's maybe not a frame, a concrete frame, although. I can see why that connection is easily made because in the 60s, battery concrete frames, particularly precast batteries of concrete walls were very popular. They used to arrive on site and you just bolt them and bolt the slab to them or tilt them up. So I can imagine that's how one could perceive the blank to be. But I think we were thinking of it a bit, a bit more than that. And then, yeah, and then I would say the other kind of industrialized object um, that is maybe a distant cousin would be the plywood, the sheet of plywood, you know, four by eight um, sheet. So using very similar uh, technologies of cross laminated um, fibers <clears throat> in the plywood sheet, you know, plywood sheet is something that one person can hold or wrestle with and install on a on a wood frame by themselves. Um, the blank clearly is this kind of scaled up 
newish material, although it's now 25, 30 years old, um, and that gets installed with the crane on site. And the 4 by 8 sheet of plywood used to be, um, you know, able to be carried by a, a pickup truck, but no longer, given that, you know, pickup trucks have gotten bigger and beds smaller. Um, when and where did the notion of doing a book around this concept of the blank uh, emerge? So what, what was the kind of origin story for the book as a project? Jennifer's house. <laughs> I would say that would be the the origin in that that kind of house gables led us to uh, both excitement and frustration of how the material was being used, you know, perceived and not understood by all generations. And I think that gave us an opportunity to say, why don't we try and teach people what we've learned um, and also try and define certain things and get more people excited so they go beyond the idea of, you know, everything is CLT now. Let's just make everything CLT and no architecture to it. So my my instinct is that when we did um, get involved in the house, she put so much effort into it for a start, but we got quite excited by the more we knew about its constraints and its freedom. It gave us a seed to start thinking. So this is House Gables, uh, Atlanta. 2018 is the date that I put on. Obviously, the project started much earlier than that, Jennifer. What's the origin story for House Gables? Well, 20, <clears throat> 2014, I made a body of work in Atlanta called Domestic Hats. Um, and I always remember that date because I was like eight months pregnant um, <clears throat> at the exhibition. But basically, uh, that was me looking at ordinary roof typologies in the city of Atlanta. And, you know, I'm looking at gables and dormers and sheds and hip roofs. And <clears throat> I made that body of work out of uh, out of white foam, really large mathing models. And so that was my um uh, you know, research question is like, what can we do with these ordinary roofs and architecture? And so the idea was then to take one of those experiments and build it one-to-one -one, um, as a full-scale house. And so Hanif uh, was the engineer on the project in the very early discussions. And, you know, he understood my research question and my formal interest and my typological questions that I was asking and then he's like, Jennifer, there's three ways to, you know, kind of build this. Um, one is with steel. Um, one, maybe you said two ways. And you said one would be with CLT. And I was like, honey, we don't build houses with steel in America. And this goes absolutely against my position on ordinary roofs. Um, <clears throat> and, he, and I said, what's CLT? Um, so he basically introduced me to the material and said that it was going to be a steep learning curve, um, but that it would um, be very exciting material to work on. And actually, I don't think there's any other material that could do the structural gymnastics that I wanted to do, um, because I'm not building gable roofs in the traditional sense of wood framing, because I, I didn't want to see the um, bottom member of the truss, right? because I wanted to expose um, the geometry and see the surface. Um, and then I'm crashing seven gables together in a very awkward way. Um, 
which is kind of outside the way that the contractors would do it out of wood frame. So anyways, it was this like special material. Um, and then I think, you know, in reflection, like if honey, if I step back from the house and look at it, um, we cut the CLT blank into many pieces, 87 pieces to be exact, um, to rationalize the geometry. Um, but there were, you know, let's say, 15 of those pieces were really large and really big. And so I think when I saw the crane dropping these large blanks in this place, um, I thought, well, what, 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 should, what could we do with the blank? What does the blank have to offer besides getting cut up? Um, <clears throat> and so when Hanif and I uh, decided to teach a option studio together uh, around the topic of mass timber, um, he can speak about the kind of origins on the research related to Scandinavia. Um, but we were, were thinking about a generic question that could be really individualized and worked on by our students. And then we were going to use both our um, disciplinary knowledge, obviously being a partnership and co-teaching as architect and engineer, really push the projects, um, which is the basis, I think, of the book. And a lot of ideas started to formulate around reviews and discussions and the students' ideas. Um, and then at the end, Hanif said, Jennifer, we have to make a book about this. Yeah. Well, it, there is a, the in between that was the, once we decided to do the studio was to do it seriously, which is to make sure that we're connected to the place where it's most used, which is Scandinavia. And immediately I, I asked people who would be interested in hosting us a little bit to teach the students. So it could be a real exercise, not just a studio. And we had enough uh, warm welcomes in Sweden in particular to go and see stuff and go and do things and go and see how CLT is made. So the studio was set up in a way where it would allow them a real first-hand experience of saying, yeah, this is not some kind of a, a metaphor. This, this is serious stuff and it's going on big scale in Scandinavia. So why shouldn't we in, in the US be thinking about it more seriously? And we wanted to do that through the studio. And I guess the book came about because of the nature of the group then that formed around the studio. The students we had were amazing. So they pushed the boundaries to a point where it became, it would have been illegal not to do the book. It was that good because it was from all the stuff I was seeing in the CLT world out there, majority of it was over-specializing an architect's role or an engineer's role or a manufacturer's role. And the majority of it was to keep people out. Whereas what these students were showing you is if you're a designer, why not? You should experiment with these things. So when the work started to come out, there was no doubt in my mind we should spread it a bit more. And then, Hanif, you do a good job of talking about, because you, in your career as a structural engineer, you've seen different materials have, like, their starting points and, like, maybe midstream, for example, like concrete precast panels or something. And so you you were kind of pushing us and you you said, look, the industry is going to take this over in capital markets and it's become, it's going to become floor plates and walls or post and beam with floor plates. And 
you know, uh, developers are going to start stacking it and then there you lose our, all architecture. And so maybe say what you said that we have to. Yeah, I, I, I was strong being at the GSD, you, you, even as an engineer, you do get contaminated a little bit by wanting to theorize and wanting to explain your work. And it also teaches you that sometimes if we don't do that, we're so undervalued as architects and engineers. So one thing I was saying already to, to everyone, and, and Jennifer and I had a long discussions about it, was the role of the architect, you know, irrespective of material, has been losing out quite a lot. And whenever a new material comes in, it loses out even more. Now, that material, you know, 15, 20 years ago was uh, geometry. And and what look what happened to the hijacking of software. Architects were more or less leveled out by people who could do scripting, and and there was no no need to do anything if you could script. And I have always felt that that these over specializations were not considerate enough of the broad role that architects can play. And I think CLT, because of its promises, was already beginning to go that way. You were getting all the the kind of brave new world people wanting to do it too quickly without thought, and the the risk of actually taking over, having no engineer involved, no architect involved. So, in disciplinary terms, to me that was not acceptable. And a collaboration between an architect and engineer at studio studio level has that responsibility to try and you know explain it pedagogically. And we tried, we tried that through the studio. I think it's a great uh, case study as a project. I mean, the book is impressive in its own right. And it's an important, I think, um, you know, kind of complement or contrast with so much of the literature that's out there on CLT today, uh, and therefore quite valuable, quite needed. But I think the story that you're telling is a compelling one in terms of the relationship between practice and the academy, research, the work of students. Um, on that point, Hanif, in your essay in the book, Dialogues of Material, you said that you um, had hoped with the book to swerve and to speculate, and in so doing to draw out various assumptions behind them. Uh, driving your urgency was the idea that much of the dialogue in architecture, engineering, and construction on the subject of CLT preserves a common status quo, seducing by exaggerated or false metrics and labels while acting as a delivery device for mass consumption. What you're saying now, I think, reinforces that notion that you're concerned that by keeping, you know, creative types out, keeping the designing classes out of the process, we really see a kind of commodification and the idea of status quo, that we can now, you know, we can continue to urbanize, we can continue to grow cities, we can continue to build in certain ways, um, and that there's a real uh, risk. Um, in that context, um, you know, you've built a career, Hanif, over decades now of, of being a kind of design forward engineering practice. You, of course, had, you know, deep experience with CLT prior to House Gables. How did you get started with the cross-laminated timber topic? It's interesting because it did, for me, also start from Stockholm because before I came to GSD, I was a professor in technology at Stockholm for five years. And what I used to find there was that, you know, they use timber a lot in different ways, historically, and they always have in Scandinavia, but they just don't treat it in the way, they don't think it's a big deal, you know, just use it. And and, and I, I thought, why haven't you, you know, gone further by cross-laminating and all sorts of things, which had been around, people were thinking about it. 
And it was the Austrians actually who first termed it as cross-laminated timber. M many people had tried it. I think there was a US patent as well previously. But the, the, the interesting thing was you can't really patent it because it's not it's not an in, it's not a, an intelligent idea per se. It's really about taking a material and making it do something. So it's difficult to to do that. So my interest had started there, and we had then taken it to the UK on different scales of buildings um, successfully, and introduced it in the UK to 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 people, and also probably the the first house ever done in CLT in the UK was done by us. Um, and then the first major building in CLT was done by us as well. And we've got several more. So we were not, we're not handcuffed to steel, concrete or timber, but we are determined to push our own practice and discipline forward. And if we don't get into new materials and new thinkers, we will not survive. That's how I think. And this is why I'd always felt that if we could get someone like Jennifer interested and her generation more interested even, suddenly you have a, a bigger question for engineers and manufacturers. Otherwise, they'll just do what's the easiest thing to do. That, you know, it was, it was really motivated partly in a selfish way like that. And Hanif, just a side note, I recently learned that Remember when we were thinking about using a North American manufacturer for the panels like Nordic or Smartland or whatever, um, and decided against it based on cost um, and went with KLH in Austria. Basically, at that time, I don't think they had the CNC technology to do the flip, the flip milling and all the kind of really acute angles and cuts in KLH in Austria because they had you know, been doing this for a while, they were able to pull it off. So serendipitously, like we got lucky that, <clears throat> you know, they were able to do it. Well, it's a good thing because it probably would have pushed the North American manufacturers to realize that they need to catch up. They? So it's all good all around as far as I'm concerned, if that happens. Aaron Pudelik offers um, an essay that I found really quite compelling in the book, which is subtitled A, a Brief History of Better Wood. Uh, each of you, if you have already referred to, you know, the CLT already being decades old and having antecedents that are ancient, presumably. Uh, I know from my own education as an architect, you know, that, you know, attempts to improve wood and its performance are very, very longstanding in the construction trades on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, are there aspects of the history of this topic that are interesting to either of you or relevant here? We, we found Erin um, and we're super excited because she's a historian of plywood. She just finished her dissertation. Um, and so we just thought, okay, she was going to have something and was uh, interesting to say. And, uh, you know, she was interested, she had been studying um, plywood in the 1930s and 40s, both on the West Coast and the East Coast, but mainly, primarily through the manufacturers at the time. And then the way in which the manufacturers um, and uh, journals and different organizational bodies would um, kind of run competitions or have like um, uh, kind of mock-ups and home, you know, uh, the case study houses, right? So she's looking at all both the link between manufacturers and architects and the experiment. 
And what she dug out that was just extremely exciting for us was the work around an unpublished female architect in the 1940s called um, named Eleanor Raymond. And her work uh, predates Gropius, and we've never heard of her before. Um, the archive of her drawings is actually held in the Loeb Library. And so we, in her essay, she points to two specific uses of Eleanor's experiments in plywood, um, one being for a traditional client where she cuts the four by eight sheet up into lap boards for siding because it needs to read as traditional. And then for another client, she uses the whole four by eight sheet as a metric and as a proportioning system for the cladding in another experimental house. And so in those drawings, you can see the four by eight sheet as a register um, on the elevation. Um, so yeah, we were excited about this link between um, the use of the experiment and use of plywood in these 1940 constructions, specifically this experimental female architect and publishing her work. Um, and the link back to the CLT blank as a, a wall system or a cladding, you know. So we see the nine by 50 foot blank in the facade, um, much like the four by eight sheet. That's Aaron Pudelik at the University of Virginia, architectural historian working on the history of plywood. I, this, my, my favorite plywood story, since we're on the topic, um, this may be apocryphal, uh, but I'm told uh, by people that I trust that, of course, after decades of beton brut, Corbusier was building these concrete, um, you know, concrete uh, buildings in uh, in France and Switzerland, uh, using kind of rip form, various form boards, you know, in a kind of European tradition. And he comes to America at the invitation of Sheridan. He produces the Carpenter Center, in which he's using you know four by eight sheets of plywood as a forming technique. And as this building is received in Boston, the Boston architects ask him publicly, "Why would you use this?" here. This is a profane material. And Corbusier disclaimed that, of course, if he had it in Europe, he'd use it there on every project. Yeah, well, you can get away with that in those days. You couldn't get away with that today, would you? <laughs> so what was a vernacular or some kind of local tradition of, um, you know, seeming, you know, not, not, you know, great import in Scandinavia comes to be seized upon in Austria, and I think increasingly in Germany, as something to be marketed as a kind of mass commodity. Uh, Jennifer, as you say, there are you know North American entrants into this uh, conversation uh, as well. Um, I can tell you, you know, personally, you know, I um, you know needed to maintain my uh, continuing education credits at the end of last year, and so I dove into a good dozen hours of CLT training from various purveyors, the American Institute of Architects. Uh, American Forestry Association, a range of other, you know, and and there is vast literature, as you may know, on the topic. Um, and the tone of it is, um, you know, often very serious, but also technically quite, you know, sober, but often quite boosterish. You know, th there is a sense that this is the future material that CLT will replace steel and concrete. It will solve carbon. It will change our economy. Um, and one of the things I think I'm most intrigued about in the book, and and you've reinforced in your, you know. Uh, conversation with me here today is the book begins not with kind of boosterism, um, not even with kind of enthusiasm, but the book begins with a kind of skepticism often. Um, I'm really intrigued by that. Um, um, in your introductory essay, After Timber Trends, which I, I think gives away a little bit of that tone, um, you write that, uh, you know, admirable and even correct narratives around CLT's potential role in tempering the climate crisis 
underestimate what this material has to offer. So what are we getting wrong? What are we missing? What are we underestimating about this uh, material? I mean, for me, it's it's uh, probably the other way around. What are we overestimating about it? The, the overestimation is that it solves all our problems uh, on embodied carbon. There is little doubt that it weighs a fifth of concrete. There's little doubt that it's magic because not only is it digitally made, but it's very quickly assembled and you can really expect it to live a hundred years. So there are all these positives, but the overestimation is really how much of it you can grow in a sustainable way and how fast to respond to housing. You know, something like a 10 hectare farm of CLT, if you if you use all the timber on that to make CLT, it would give you about a thousand square meters of 17 millimeters of CLT. So it doesn't produce as much CLT as you think. So I think the overestimation is that it on its own can get rid of all of the materials. I mean, it, it can't for one. The second is that we, we need to find ways of, let's say, extending its use in a way that helps us buy some time to resolve the problems which are unquestionable that concrete and steel give us. And the, tra the train has started to run to try and solve those problems as well. So you've got to have a balanced view on, on this. And I think if it's interesting you say it came up across as skepticism. I think certainly on my part, when we started to do book, the book, I suddenly realized that the name, most of the names Jennifer brought to the table, um, I knew one or two of them, and I'd never seen of them as architects who would be interested in the kind of thing we were. So for me, it was this, the skepticism may have been coming from, are we just this, these two friends who are nuts and want to do this thing? Or do we have all these other friends? And suddenly I think not a single person said no when we asked. So I think it grew out of that. And, and in, in the end, I think that's what's one of the strongest things about the book is it's, it's a group of people that you would say wouldn't ordinarily come together to talk about a singular thing, whether it's material or anything else. But all of them have a similar interest in wanting to stay in the discipline and make it work. So I think it's in that sense, trying to be optimistic and say, you know, don't worry about that guy who keeps telling you he can do CLT and you can't ignore him. You know, that's the kind of thing that it brought to me when I started to read and understand what some of these people were putting together. You mentioned the group. Uh, we should acknowledge a, a dozen other contributors, including Sean Canty, Asmin Vobis, Christopher Lee, Nader Tarani, Eric Naginsky, and Alia. It's an impressive group and not necessarily a group that I would imagine, immediately imagine sorting together. I think the diversity of the group intellectually and culturally is quite an important part of the project. Um, Hanif, maybe maybe more precisely than skepticism, I was intrigued that you open your essay with this, this kind of disclaimer, this acknowledgement that it's not often the case that we consider construction materials from a critical point of view. And I want I want to I want to kind of pursue that with you because it you wrote it and I read it and it seems it's one of those things that's immediately self-evident once I've read it to guess this is true. 
Yeah, and, and largely it's because materials come from the world of science. And even though our ten our tenant is to optimize, that's what we are, you know, what scientists want to do. What we don't see seem to realize is not everybody wants to live in an optimized world. And I think what happens is by the time it gets out to the market and, and there are other look, feel, or, you know, how long does it live? All these other issues that we have to consider in architecture, quality of life, that that we we don't, you know, we, we almost come to that as though, yeah, and then we'll find the material to do that. That's how we tend to work in the last 30 or 40 years. We, we have all these issues we need to solve because of where the building is. Oh, yeah, and then we'll do it with either timber, concrete, steel or whatever. And there's no critical thinking of how will we reinvent the material or will it be more than one material or why why should it just be what the contractor tells us? So it's it's that. I was just trying to put myself on the table there by saying, I think I, I have noticed that even my office, the next generation are becoming far more critical of it than my generation was, far more. And they are they are to a point where it becomes um, frustrating at times because, you know, you, you end up saying, well, I know the answer to that. It's a six-inch slab. And, and they'll come back over and over again. So I think it's fair to say that you have to be more critical, far more critical than we have been in the last 30 years. I mean, in reading that um, and the rest of your essay, I mean, I was struck by the the kind of profound reflection. Obviously, this is now a, a career's worth of considering these topics. It, uh, it reminded me a bit of um, Adrian Forty's book on concrete. Adrian Forty, you know, British you know design historian, has written this amazing cultural history of a material. And one of his claims, which I found really quite powerful, was this notion that each culture in Europe, uh, the examples he looked at, saw in concrete something different. Each one claimed it would reduce you know, material need, it would reduce labor or it would increase hand labor. It would it would be an, a luxury good. No, it would be available for mass socialism. And each culture perceived it and used it, therefore, in very, very different ways. And so that notion of approaching material science and technology from a kind of cultural point of view, I think is something our friends in the history of science and technology studies have been doing for some time now. And I sense in, in your words here, there's that potential of a project of being engaged with and open to its potential, you know, being engaged in the world and making projects and believing that we can in fact improve conditions in the world for people through our work, but at the same moment to develop a kind of critical cultural perspective on these things. Yeah, Charles, I, I like that um, example of the concrete um, manuscript because that's exactly when we thought about this list of contributors to this book, um, we wanted a wide range of historians, contemporary architects, uh, contemporary artists. Um, and the criteria for being in the book isn't whether you've built with CLT or not. Some some of the writers have, like Yasmin Vobis and Nader Tarani at NADA, um, who are very uh, uh, skilled and like know this material backwards and forwards and have very interesting precedent buildings already under their belt. But we were interested in voices like Sean Canty and Sam Jacobs, who are contemporary architects that have not yet built with the material, but we thought they had something to offer through its interpretation of what the CLT blank could do for architecture. And so um, Sam Jacob talks about the role of the drawing. We can see it in maybe some of his previous work from FAT, the kind of figural 
flatness that emerges in his work that, you know, neat, CLT neatly maps on to those kind of geometries and that, that those kind of masses that um, he's designed in the past. And then, yeah, interest in what Sean Canty has to say um, around CLT as an architect who's wrestling with housing and curvature and, you know, thinking how to be outside the role of a planar architecture. So um, that's exactly why uh, this cast of characters was um, invited to write these essays, but also Hanif and I had wonderful conversations on Zoom, talking to them about the um, thesis of the book, and then, you know, just expanding these ideas even further. I mean, I was struck in um, Nadir Tarani's contribution of this uh, tension, this kind of long-standing, long-durée dialectic between the desire for being monolithic or solid and this trajectory to the inevitability of being planar. There's something about the inevitability of that of that sandwich, that 17 millimeters, I don't know if you refer to, that we've you've already learned how to do in your practice, and somehow we inevitably work toward these kind of planar conditions. Um, Jennifer, I remember when you um, presented House Gables publicly, one of the things that you said that struck me as relevant here is the kind of symmetry or the kind of um, analog between building in this way with these blank sheets of material milled as they were um, and the building of a model. Because there was almost a kind of direct, you know, scalar reciprocity between the way that you would build a simple model out of, you know, chipboard or foam core or foam or something, and the way in which the, the house was constructed. Um, is that something that endures in your thinking about it, uh, having done the book now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Yasmin writes a whole essay on um, the role of models um, with CLT, right? So if you kind of squint your eyes when the panels are being installed on site in Atlanta, it looked to be like foam core or cardboard on somebody's desk and the panelization, the way we, you know, um, make models um, and that closeness to uh, the scaled model. So the one-to-one is eerily shocking, you know, shocking to see that translation. Um, But what's exciting about it is that there's a level of abstraction involved. Like it's almost like you can't believe that you could build um, a house that looks like a model. um, And we can do so because of these large sheets, right? And I mean, people like Scott Cohen have said, um, have reread, Eisenman's cardboard architecture um, alongside this book when we sent him a copy and he's like this is the material you know that maps even on to that 1969 essay by uh, Peter Eisenman so I mean there is a, a wonderful perversity could I use that you know the, the term you know that you begin with this you know kind of obsession is that is that fair to describe these house these gable conditions which are vernacular and single family housing construction in the South, you know, where I'm from, where you're from, and to identify within them these kind of formal properties. And as you say, doing these large foam, you know, kind of maquettes of them as a kind of installation device. Um, but then to find in the CLT process through honest advice, you know, this sense of, well, there's this other planar construction. There are a couple of things that accrue to that immediately. You've mentioned the abstraction. That's something I think that we we, we should spend some time on as well. Um, I mean, for decades, maybe for centuries, you know, architects, you know, have been, you know, trying to basically deny or suppress material distinctions towards some other effects. And that's a broad statement, but I think we can probably imagine, you've mentioned Eisen, and I can, you know, mention a number of other examples. Um, Having said that, there's something about the blank, which itself 
almost begins in abstraction. Um, I remember Scott Cohen saying that, you know, in, in his conception of contemporary architecture, much of the representational task has fallen out that, you know, they move from model to fabrication. And in this case, I wonder if in your experience, Jennifer, if the CLT and the idea of blankness can accelerate a sense of absence, you know, does it necessarily allow for greater abstraction? Or are there other aspects of the construction that need to be mitigated? Because in my experience, you know, if you push in one direction hard enough, something else pops out somewhere. I mean, I know that you've talked at great length about the connectors, which become, I know Yasmin Bobas has also spoken about this, the, the, a lot of pressure and heat goes not so much to the, to the shipping, not so much to the stability of the device or the structural element when it's being moved or positioned, which historically had always been an issue with wood construction. But now it's really about how do you connect these planes um, in, in a variety of ways? Are, are there other aspects of the construction technique that beyond abstraction you know, became apparent to you through, through building the house? Well, I mean, uh, it truly is a digital material in one sense, um, because uh, it's being manufactured, we're working on the engineering and the design digitally, we then um, uh, hand the file over to the manufacturer, who then prepares the tooling pass and starts cutting. So, um, you know, the, the link between the digital model and then being on site with the eighth inch tolerance these things go together. Um, these my complex miter cuts go together with a eighth inch tolerance. So, um, in a way, it's super smooth. It's fast, um, and then that tectonic can be realized, um, which is an abstraction in the digital model, um, and that can be realized directly on site. Um, so, craft, you know, uh, is about swinging the the crane and not knocking the panels around. That's all that we're really worried about. Um, in terms of craft. Um, I, I want to go back to a point about uh, what do we see in this material. I think one thing to underscore also, um, and that we tried to do in the aesthetics of the book, is this notion of wood grain. So that's what's different between uh, maybe Eisenman's cardboard architecture, the kind of white models and houses that got built in the 70s and 80s, um, and then this material, which we are calling an abstract um, material, but it comes loaded with wood, oh, an image of wood grain. And that wood, you know, are basically two by sixes um, glued together and then cross glued together. And so you get the sandwich on the end grain and you get this sheet of, you know, wood. Um, and so that's interesting because that's going to start to change the domestic interior or public interiors. Um, if you squint your eyes, it's kind of just a beige color, right? And so that's why we picked the paper of the book that the drawings lie on are this kind of muted beige color. Um, and then you'll also find that the graphic design graphic designer Neil Donnelly um, uh, organized the book based on cross laminated timber and the way it works is this cross grain. So he has the reader rotating the book um, every other essay. And so that you actually feel the uh, construction logic or the layering of cross laminated timber while you're actually reading the the object or the document. One of the things I'm interested in is the um, the, the way in which this pivot or shift or tendency toward um, growing material uh, stands in contrast with the longer tradition of extracting material. Uh, we've touched on this earlier, the challenges around concrete and steel. Um, 
Jennifer, in your experience of, of building a house in Atlanta, you chose to go with the European and Austrian, uh, you know, uh, supplier for the reasons that we've mentioned, right? Uh, they've been doing it longer. They were able to work more seamlessly and 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 to achieve a, a kind of realization that was closer ba based on the technology. But that implied, you know, shipping, right? So presumably, um, the the idea of in that in that moment, um, you know, uh, between twenty. 14 and 2018, the idea that the shipping cost was a marginal cost at that point, but obviously implied carbon. Um, and I'm wondering if um, if we see, um, for either of you, other tendencies toward growing material. Um, and if you've mentioned the challenges simply of you know acreage, how, how many hectares of forest can we have? Uh, how can we sustainably manage those hectares of forest? And as we look toward renewals, renewable energy more broadly, whether it be photovoltaics or wind, increasingly as we scale up and think about these systems, um, land becomes a real challenge. Um, but I wonder if you think of CLT in relationship to uh, what Paul Lewis has referred to recently as other biogenic materials. That is, is, is this the first of what will be many other materials that we can grow through, you know, fixing nitrogen? Um, or is this really a, a one-off? It's, uh, it's a big question. Um, we're going in the right direction, but as a structural engineer, I think the challenge we face putting aside just for one second the climate challenge the challenge we really face is how do you give people homes all the people in the global south um, and global north are different you can't suddenly just wait for things to grow to feed and also make homes for these people so there is a global question about it i think it's really good that we are all beginning to think about localness and how we grow something nearby so that we can use that for our construction and it becomes a circular activity. But I think to scale that up is going to be, you know, 40, 50 years. And even when we manage to get there, the population increase is so huge across the world, the demand for housing will have, will have uh, outsmarted us yet again. So, I don't think there are hundreds of new materials, um, but the good signs are that just recently, I think two months ago, France, for instance, has just made a law that says all public buildings should have 50% biomaterials, 50%. Otherwise, you can't build it. Now, that's a good sign because once you start to be realistic but also implement it by law, it begins to change the curve a little bit. I, I'm yet to see how we can scale up mycelium and straw and all these other materials and you know studios that I've done since then have been looking at stuff like that. Um, I'm not yet confident enough to say that that's the only way in the future. I think there are, there are solutions that need mul multiple ways of solving this problem. You mentioned the the global south, um, uh, what's you know being referred to uh, increasingly as the majority world. Um, is the fact that the technology comes from you know Western Europe, Scandinavia, Austria, North America, does that 
you know, does that does that present particular challenges here? Uh, I'm thinking about the cultural reception and adaptation of various materials. Again, thinking of the Adrian Forty book on concrete as an example, and I wonder if we could speculate on ways in which different cultures might appropriate these without needing necessarily to simply, um, you know, uh, download the, the the higher technology from other cultures. Yeah, no, I think it's it's difficult not to oversimplify to answer such a question, right? If you look at Bangladesh, the use of bamboo has been ignored for too long, and yet it is one of the most ubiquitous materials. Marina Tabassum and others are using it for housing because for emergency housing, you need something as rapid as that. And for their climate, it works. But if you go to Singapore and offer um, timber or bamboo, culturally, they say, well, why did you use steel and concrete? And you're now trying to pass us off with this second-rate material or third-rate material. So I think it depends, and it depend, it's, it's not easy to answer as a question. And, of course, when you bring the whole of Africa into it, it becomes even more difficult to try and say, well, how are we going to win them away from the mistakes we made? Um, my My optimism is that if we can find solutions to the problems we've created and offer them the solutions before they say start using concrete, you know, how can you use a friendlier concrete? Things like that, we have a better chance. That that's a, a more likely scenario as I see it, at least in the immediate fifty years. In addition to um questions of climate and questions of construction and questions of architectural culture um you know, one thread of the book one you know kind of line of thought across the the project is an interest in the kind of cultural sign- significance of this you know construction method um and I, I was struck by how the examples include not just the designing classes architects engineers uh you know construction but also uh, contemporary artists uh Jennifer I, I know you've been thinking quite a lot about the ways in which we can look to other forms of cultural production in relationship to to CLT um to tell us about the artists that you found uh, most compelling in that regard yeah so we um looked at the work of Lauren Halsey, who is a Los Angeles-based artist, um, and the way that she is taking blank surfaces in her specific work that we published um, at the Hammer Museum. Uh, She takes uh, sheets of drywall or jetboard, and she cuts and engraves, cuts and carves and engraves messages, meanings, symbols, um, themes that emerge around her neighborhood. This often could be like advertisements, um, the way in which people cut with keys into glass at bus stops, uh, brick and you know brick images. And so these, this is her uh, set of hieroglyphs, is what she calls them, um, and they are, you know, uh, become like a secondary reading on the the uh, blank uh, temples and and constructions that she makes inside of museums. And so we saw an easy translate translation over to the CLT blank and how might we use the CNC machine to cut and carve. Um, also in an essay by Nelson Biyun, which is called Cutout, he look at, looks at Matisse's late, late work where he's using a pair of scissors and cutting out shapes and figures and paper from his wheelchair at the like later stages of his um, career. And so again, just the notion of cutting out figures and what shapes can we cut out of the blank. 
And lastly, the work of Jennifer Bolanday, who um, installs these kind of uh, wood grain curtains and empty storefronts. Um, and they have a kind of Trump lull effect to them. And then, you know, we can see curvature and depth in a very flattened way. So all of these things are in an effort to uh, open up a range of techniques for architects to rethink the material as just this industrialized object and, and how can we work with it and push it further. I think those contributions are really an excellent um, illustration. I think they they exemplify, you know, Hanif's call to make sure that these things are not simply in the hands of the um, of the of the technocrats, right? Not just not simply the the the, the, the kind of precinct of the uh, of the professionals. Jennifer Bonner, Hanif Kara, thanks so very much. Thank you, Charles. Thanks. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.